get to open up God's Word again. In the summer, we do these summer psalms. We are in Psalm 41 this morning. Make your way over there. Uh, no one knows for sure why, but as long as anyone can remember, uh, the psalms have been divided into five smaller books. Uh, there's no real rhyme or reason to it that anyone has been able to definitively explain, right? Uh, I think the third one has 16 psalms. The first one has uh, 41 psalms, and, and that's the one we're in this morning, right? Which makes 41, right? The very last psalm in book one. Uh, every single book uh, of the psalms ends with a similar sounding doxology, which is verse 13 you'll see in our passage today. Uh, this psalm, uh, Psalm 41, is written by King David. And since I didn't get the outline in the bulletin for you today, let me verbally just give it to you real quick. Because I know some of you like to work in structured kind of understanding. Um, bulletin point number one would be verses one through three. And this is the blessed one cares for the poor. Uh, two would be verses four through ten. And, and, and that's titled, these people are the worst. Uh, bulletin point three would be uh, verses 11 and 12 and just titled integrity. Uh, four would be verse 13, which is uh, doxology. And then four, or five, this is the application. I just called it uh, some poor application. Uh, so there you have it. If you like structure in your life, uh, now you have some structure. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and read Psalm 41. It's uh, 13 verses. And I just ask you to follow along in your own Bibles as I read aloud. <clears throat> Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, uh, when, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. <clears throat> they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. But this I know that you, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, blessed be your name. This morning we ask that you would <clears throat> enlighten our minds to understand, to submit to, to care about, to believe and to apply your word to our hearts and to our way of, of living these days that you have gifted us with. Father, we ask that you would give us joy this morning to learn from Psalm 51. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so our psalm begins with that beautiful declaration, right? <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Kind of better? There's no mute button here. That'd be great if I had it for just a minute. Anyway, uh, it begins with this beautiful declaration. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, did you notice in your Bible, if you got it out before you, there's a little mark, probably a number, a letter next to that word poor. 
And if you follow that down to the bottom, it'll tell you um, something along the lines of, well, it, it's, it's telling you that, that's a Hebrew, that the Hebrew word here, doll, that it can be translated as poor or as weak. Either one of those. And the reason is, is that these terms are, are so very similar, right? Since, since those who are poor in any society are, are usually also the weak in that same society. They are often sick. They are often struggling in that way. And, and this is because they don't have means to, to obtain good food or proper health care or quality education or, or just living in a clean environment. Things like that become a little more challenging when someone is poor. Now, wealth provides opportunity. It provides power. While poverty makes for difficulty, a difficult path in this life. We, we know this. We observe this. We see this, even if we've never experienced this. And so, again, the opening words of our psalm, right? Blessed is the one who considers the poor, or blessed is the one who considers the weak. Either way, it leaves us with this lingering question here. Who is it actually a reference to? Who actually is the blessed one that, that David is speaking of here when he writes this? And, and we can, you know, hear this opening statement in, in two different ways. On, on the one hand, we can hear it like... Um, we can hear it like a, a beatitude, right, as, as referring to, to God himself, right, as in blessed is the Lord, it is God who considers the poor. That could be the way we understand this, right? The, the, the Psalms are arranged intentionally. Uh, Psalm 40 comes after 41 on, on purpose by the original uh, putting in order. And there's an actual connection between these two. If you look at it, uh, you got it open in your Bible. You can scroll back to the last verse, uh, in verse in Psalm 40, and you'll see that David is, is praying here. And in that last verse, he says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. He acknowledges himself like that. And, and so David is confessing, right, that he is poor and needy. And so perhaps here he is appealing to the fact that the Lord is gracious, gracious in his character. And the Lord is gracious to those who are poor and needy, those like David. Now, on the other hand, we, we could read this first line as a, a promise stating that God will bless anyone who cares for the weak, who cares for the poor, who considers them, right? It's, and if we read it this way, then, then David is a, a appealing to God's promise to bless those who bless the poor. Now, because David himself, and, and this is where the appeal would come from, right? That David himself <clears throat> has considered and cared for the poor that dwell in, in his kingdom, in, in the, the kingdom of Israel. And now he's asking God in this time of suffering, look, I have, I have done that. I'm one of those people. You've made this promise. Uh, and, and so please bless me in the midst of my suffering. That, that's the assumed part there, right? You'll notice later David doesn't actually say it that way. Now, this way of, of reading it fits with what Jesus later teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. We, we said it in our liturgy earlier, right? Matthew 5, 7, when the Lord says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So then which way are we to actually read this? You'll, you'll find it doesn't make much difference in the final application of it, but uh, that the Lord is the one who considers the poor, or, or are we doing that the Lord will bless the one who considers the poor? Now listen, while it is absolutely true that our God considers the poor and weak, absolutely true, the very gospel that you and I have believed is undeniable proof that God cares for the weak and the needy. However, the, the point here in Psalm 41 is that the Lord has indeed promised to bless those who consider the poor, those like David in the way he has led. He, he is now asking God to show him mercy in, in his own sickness. Now, before we move on, I, I do want you to notice that David doesn't say here, he doesn't say blessed is the, is the, man, is the, is the one who sees the poor man. 
And he doesn't say, blessed is the one who feels bad for the poor woman. And he doesn't say, blessed is the one who donates some money to that poor family. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. You see, considering here is far more than simple concern, far more than maybe it crossed your mind that's not so good for them. The the word implies thoughtful reflection, reflection on another person's situation, on, on their condition, you know, asking questions of yourself, like, why are they poor? Why are they in this situation? How can I actually change their situation? Not just by throwing money at people, but rather, you know, you're focusing your your thoughts on how can you genuinely help them? What do they really need? Not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. And we'll come back to that later when we get to the poor application later. But for now, I want you to see what exactly God does, right, for the one who considers the poor. Because he lists out um, in these... In, in these first three verses, right, there are seven things that David says God does for the one who considers the poor. And we're going to go through these quickly. Uh, in the second half of verse 1, we learn that in the day of trouble, the Lord will deliver the one who considers the poor. Deliver him. In verse 2, we, we learn the Lord will protect him. Uh, we learn the, the Lord will sustain uh, his life, that the Lord will bless him in the land, uh, that the Lord will, uh, will not turn him over to the evil desires of his enemies. All this is coming into protection, Right? In verse 3, we learn that God will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him to full health. And as you're going to see in a moment, that's really what David is asking God to do. All those things, specifically those last two. Now, the rest of this psalm is this personal prayer of of King David to God, telling him, here are all my woes, God. Here are all the things going on with my life right now, and he's just pouring out. And, And if it weren't to the Lord, it would probably sound like a bunch of complaining. The psalms often sound that way. But he's speaking to to God who can do something about it. Uh, David begins in verse 4 by asking God to be gracious to him, to heal him. And then he gives a reason for this request. And and based on everything I said earlier, right, you might expect David to lay out his resume here of his godliness. Like, like God, heal me because of all the ways I have helped the poor in, in this kingdom over the years. Right? Here's my whole list. Remember that guy and that guy and that woman and that family and that child and, and so on. But what's, that's not what David says here. He doesn't say heal me because I'm holy, because I've earned it, because I deserve it in some way. He says heal me because I am not good. I am not holy. God, heal me because I have sinned against you. And isn't that the only way that we ever come to God? Saying, God, I am a a sinner and I I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need forgiveness. I, I need your healing. Listen, there is nothing that you can do, nothing that you can say to to make yourself worthy of God's mercy. You don't receive it because you're worthy, right? That's the whole point of mercy. At the men's Bible study last Wednesday, this idea kind of came up. We get on some rabbit trails sometime. Uh, But anyway, you know, Stuckey here on his last day, we'll quote Stuckey quoting Jerry Bridges, um, you know, because he did quote Jerry Bridges. He said, Uh, We bring nothing to our salvation except our sin that made it necessary. That's what we provide. That's the way he's coming to to the Lord here. Right? We know this. The the Apostle Paul in in Romans 5, 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for a bunch of righteous people, for the ungodly. And David knows that he is ungodly. He confesses his sin to the Lord here, and he's asking the Lord for mercy. That, that is how all who come to Jesus must come to Jesus. And if you think you've come any other way, you're misinformed. 
needy and seeking mercy and forgiveness. And then starting in in verse 5, we see four things that these visitors do. These people are horrible. Um, I'm just going to say it, right? I know we're probably going to be like, yeah, we're kind of like that sometimes. Anyway, uh, first in verse 5, we see they are hoping that David dies and his name is forgotten. Can you imagine being in the hospital, I don't know, heart issues, some virus, whatever it might be, right? And, and you're not sure you're going to survive, and some people from work come in, and they're, hey, good to see you, thought we'd check on you, here's your balloon that says get well soon, all right? All that kind of thing, and, and then they wander out in the hallway, and you can overhear them, and they're saying, boy, I hope she dies, hope she dies, and no one remembers her. I mean, can you imagine anything like that? They just go out there, and they don't wish that you get well soon. That's David's situation here, right? It's heartbreakingly similar to that. Probably, probably because they're jealous. Probably because they want the power that he has as king. Or whatever they envision, life would be better if he were not in charge. In the next two verses, 6 and 7, we, we see the second evil thing done by these visitors. They are spreading malicious information about him. Right? And here, you know, David probably wants to ask him, you know, did you think I wouldn't hear all the things you said about me? We tend to think of gossip as spreading false information, outright lies, and it is that. It is absolutely that, but it's also sharing any information that should be kept confidential. It's not yours to share. It is revealing things about people, even true things, but with this intention, right? This malicious intention to lead others to view them in the worst possible way possible. That was redundant. And while culturally many even many of us make light of gossip <clears throat> in that we treat it like it's just no big deal it's a it's a minor league sin right uh, right to <clears throat> to use words to bring reputation or harm to someone's reputation or you know to our brothers and, and sisters in Christ or to our neighbors right you, you you should know that God does not consider gossip no big deal Romans 1 Paul share how, shares how how God has just given them over to themselves right let them just go do what they want to do and, and, and not withhold anymore. And, and it says right there how they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. And then Paul goes on to list all these sins, right? Uh, that these terrible sins that they committed once they had been turned over to, given over to themselves. Um, and among murder and, and hating God, we see right there and gossiping. They were gossipers. You, you see, gossip is no small thing to our holy God. The third evil done to David is they're attributing his, his sickness to God's judgment on him. You see how in verse 8 this says, right, a, a deadly thing is poured out on him. Uh, some suffering in, in life is indeed discipline for sin. Some suffering is the Lord's developing our, our character. Uh, that's why Paul says in Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, uh, knowing that suffering produces endurance, right? And still... Other suffering is, is for the glory of God. You think of, of Job, right, or the, the blind man that was born blind from, from birth, and yet Jesus heals him later on. It's for the glory of God that he suffered in that way. And, and now, here's the thing. You and I, we can't look at someone's life and name the reason for their suffering. And, and it's incredibly ungracious. It's wrong. If we're to come and assume, right, this is God's discipline on them for sin, right? You are not God. You do not know the reason that someone suffers, Again, can you imagine, though, if someone visiting you in the midst of your worst sickness and, and them just saying, surely it's because of his sin, right? He's, he is in the hospital right now because of that stuff he was saying about me. 
whatever. We, we can't do that. Um, and then we see the last thing done to David in verse 9. David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That, that phrase, lifted my, his heel against me. I, I naturally want to think, like, lifted the heel and going to, like, stomp. Like, that's kind of the image here. That's not where it comes from. The, the idea is just that a friend has betrayed him, and the friend has now turned to, to walk away from him. Uh, and in walking away, that heel is lifted up, right? The heel is lifted as he walks away. And so it just means uh, a friend has betrayed him. Uh, and, and this verse might sound incredibly familiar to you because Jesus applies it to Judas, right? The, the ultimate betrayer. Uh, in John 13, 18, while he's reclining at the, the Last Supper, Jesus says, <clears throat> the scripture will be f- fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There's only one part there. If you look at the verse in front of you there, you see Jesus left out one little bit. He left out the part about it being a friend whom he trusted. This is, of course, because Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything, and he knew from the beginning uh, that while he would do nothing but kindness and goodness to Judas, that, that Judas was not someone to be trusted because Judas was going to betray him. Anyway, we, we see here also the word but, right? In, in Scripture, this is a, always something significant. There's a contrast. There's a changing of direction. When we see that word, it's no different here. Uh, that's what we see in verse 10. Uh, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay, him, repay, repay them. Right? All this horrible stuff's going on. But Lord, heal me. Raise me up. Right? Be gracious to me. In that first bit, that's pretty nice, right? Be gracious to me. God, show me mercy. No problem with that, do we, right? The second bit sounds a little, a little vindictive. Raise me up that I might repay them. Sounds almost like a muhuhaha kind of, kind of idea, this vindictive thing. That's, that's, that's so unlike Jesus, right, who, who prayed for the soldiers crucifying him. In Luke 23, 34, right, Jesus there says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, now, let me tell you why David isn't being petty. He isn't being vindictive here. He's doing the right thing. This is the right thing that he should be doing. Um, here's why David can pray like this against his enemies, those who have done some evil things to him. And, and you probably shouldn't pray against Deborah, right, because she was gossiping against you. Like, raise me up, Lord, so I can smack Deborah down, uh, right? That's not the way we, we should be praying. Now, here's the thing, that unlike you and me, David is the king of Israel, how many of you are kings? What, what these people have done against David is not just against David the guy. It's against David the king, right? That They have committed treason. And punishment, or punishing those who commit treason, is one of the responsibilities of a faithful king. It is absolutely the way David should be responding here. It's the right thing for him to do. And so then in verse 11, David is simply expressing this confidence in the Lord. Indeed, God will rescue me. Uh, He will be gracious to me. God will answer his prayers and that these uh, treasonous traitors will not triumph. Uh, He also acknowledges that that God not only will delight in him, right, as a, a future thing, but that God is right now delighting in him. And this is a big deal because David's still suffering. He hasn't found relief yet. And it's not that God will delight in him, and that's going to be proven by the fact that, you know, suffering goes away. But in the midst of that suffering, he's saying, God delights in me. Are, are you confident in that, that, the, that God delights in you? 
You see, if your faith is in, in Jesus Christ, then you need to know that God does indeed delight in you because you're his. Doesn't mean he always delights in exactly what we're doing at any given moment. But he delights in you as his, his child whom he's redeemed. In verse 12, uh, right, David is acknowledging that his integrity has remained intact through, through all this. This is a pretty big deal, actually, right? And in suffering, we might be tempted to, to be like Job's wife, right? And just curse God. How can you let this happen to me? Or, or we might be tempted to do evil things to people who have done evil things to us. Vengeance is mine. I will, I will you know, Deborah again. I'll smack her down. But, but we must keep the integrity that the Lord gives us. And finally, verse 41, as I said, is the first book of the Psalter. And it ends with this doxology, this expression of praise to the Lord that ends with that statement, amen and amen, right? You, you might not know this, but you actually know a little bit of Hebrew in your life. Uh, amen is a Hebrew word. It's not translated in any language. It's amen in every language on the planet. Uh, and so everyone speaks a little bit of Hebrew, right? And here's what it means. It means so it is, or like truly, it's this agreement of a, of a truth statement, kind of like, uh, like the modern use of that phrase, like true that. Anyone ever say that, right? Nutella on waffles is amazing, true that. You want to say amen? Christy's like, no, I never say true that. Um, you shouldn't. Uh, you can say amen. David makes this declaration here in verse 13, right? Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And the response, amen and amen, right? It's a double statement. This is super duper true. Um, now, now for the, the poor application, and by which I mean, how does verse 1 actually challenge us today? How, how are we to change and grow so that that what, God, what our God says here, right? He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. That that means something to us. The first PCA, that's our denomination, the first PCA pastor whose preaching I ever sat under was a guy named Skip Ryan in Dallas, Texas. And I, I recently, recently found a quote that I had written down by him back in the day. He said, he said, I'm beginning to realize that we can be about many good Christian works but without some part of our living being directed towards those who are in material, uh, in material physical need, we may find ourselves one day hearing the Lord ask, you believed in me, but, you, but did you obey me? It's harsh sounding, right? He, he's referencing Matthew 7, 21, where our Lord points out that the one, uh, one sign of, of genuine faith is, is having active priorities that, that mirror the will of our Father in heaven. Not that you become the Father in heaven, right? Not that you're perfectly do so, but, but that what, what's important to God becomes important to us. Uh, along those same lines, Tim Keller said, it is because that we have received radical spiritual generosity from God that we can be radically generous to those in need. The more that you understand your, your own weakness, the more that you understand your own spiritual poverty, your own empty hands in the presence of the Lord, Here, here's what I have brought you, Lord, nothing. Nothing but sin. And the more you will understand just how generous Jesus has been to you in the gospel. And when that truth migrates, right, from our head, intellectual understanding, to our heart, to where it really sinks in, right, it changes us to care more about people who are, who are poor, more about people who are weak, more about people who are sick, those who are in great need, both in the spiritual sense and a physical sense, material sense. 
You see, throughout history, Christians have been known for caring about the weakest and the poorest in any given society. The society hasn't always appreciated Christians for this, but, but that's what they have been known for, right? And in Roman culture, a father could have a child thrown away if he didn't want that child. I don't want that one. Just throw them in the trash. And Christians in Rome would rescue these children literally from garbage piles to preserve their life. Similarly, I, I read recently how in the early 1900s, church deacons in, in Portland, Oregon, had this strange responsibility. Every morning, they had to go and walk along the boardwalk, right? It's just, you know, Bob, it's your turn. Go walk the boardwalk this morning. And, and the reason they would have to go do this is that uh, they're looking for babies that have been tossed out in the night, uh, babies that have been born to, to local prostitutes and just tossed out to die. And they would rescue these children. You see, all over the globe, Christians have started hospitals to care for the sick. That's, that's why so many hospitals have these Christian names or denominational sounding names, and you think, that's kind of weird, right? Even Via Christi here in town, right? Through Christ is what that means. Or St. Luke's in, in Kansas City. My, my son Beckham, born in Dallas, was born in Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, right? You're born, and they just baptized you immediately. They, they didn't really. Uh, but you go to just about any country in the world and, and you're going to find this history of Christians starting hospitals, starting food pantries, starting orphanages, schools, and so much more. As James Johnson so beautifully puts it, an open heart towards the weak and the poor is a quality that identifies God's people and brings God's blessing. It characterizes us as God's people. In Matthew 25, uh, in a parable there that Jesus tells, he, he divides everyone on the planet, right, into these two groups. You, you've got the goat and you've got the sheep. Uh, those are the two categories. And he says the sheep come to the kingdom while the goats depart. They go away. And, and, and the sheep are represented, are rep you know, represent the redeemed children of God, while the goats are those who are still in their sin, those who follow the way of the devil, those who the scripture says will, will endure, suffer the wrath of God yet. And so Jesus labels these groups, sheep and goat, before ever mentioning what their actions are. Meaning it's not you did this, therefore you're a sheep, and you did this, so now you're a goat, that kind of thing. He, he labels them before they're ever, ever told one way or the other. Uh, in other words, their, their behavior does not determine whether they were goats or sheep, but their behavior does reveal, it tells you whether they are indeed sheep or goat. It doesn't determine it, it reveals it. Because uh, goats are going to goat, and sheep are going to sheep. Uh, and this is where Jesus' story gets interesting in regards to our passage today because Jesus says that the sheep are those who are united to him in faith, right? Those people, they feed and shelter and heal and comfort the weak. That's what they do. In other words, the sheep are very much like their shepherd in how they treat the poor, how they treat the needy. What, what makes this even more interesting is that Jesus doesn't say the, the sheep treat people I guess I have the sheep over here. The sheep treat people like I treat people. He doesn't say, oh, they, they treat people so that they might glorify thy name, right? Although that's true. Instead, when the, when the sheep of God give food to the hungry, when they clothe the naked, when they welcome the stranger, when they visit the sick and in prison, curiously, Jesus says they did all that to him. To him. What about the goats? Well, they're, they're not described as cruel or mean or nasty in any way. They're just simply uh, as being apathetically indifferent to those in need. Just don't care. They didn't notice. And Jesus says to the goats, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And their response is to claim ignorance. What? 
What are you talking about? When, when did this happen? We never saw you hungry. We never saw you poor or weak or, or naked. We never saw you do any of that. And this is when Jesus finally, right, makes the, the whole point, the, the, the crushing condemnation here when he says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, when, when you and I consider the poor and the needy, when we care about their needs, when we minister to those in need, Jesus considers it like we are caring for him. That's the way it's viewed. And if we if you don't care about the poor, you're, you're also not caring about Jesus. That's the implication here. That, that's exactly, go read Matthew 25. That's exactly the way Jesus puts it there. And, and so what's the simple application here today, right? It's very simple. Consider the poor. You can probably memorize that right now on the fly. Consider the poor, right? Reflect on who the poor are who the weak are in our town, in our region, the places that you interact. Put some thought into reflecting on it. Like truly, like why are they poor? Why are they in the situation they are? Why are they weak, right? And, and let me just admit to you, if you're like me, then, then your first reaction is going to be, you know, to, to assume, oh, they're poor because they've made some terrible, stupid decisions in their life. That's why they're poor, the only reason. Or, or they're poor simply because they are lazy. Something like that. So, and, and sometimes that is absolutely true. And yet that's not a condition here that Jesus puts on whether we care for the poor. Whether we consider them or not. There, there is the question, right? Is there a way that you can genuinely, genuinely help them? And there might not be. That, that is a possibility given some situation. But just because some people would absolutely refuse any legit help. That doesn't mean that we don't consider anyone at all. And, and listen, I don't mean empty virtual signaling, right? Like hashtag in poverty kind of thing or yard signs that say you care about poor people. I, I don't mean just throwing money at someone even. Th though, you know, giving to the, the mercy fund that we keep, that, that it would be a very helpful way to, to care for the needs of those in this covenant community. And there are things like that. Yes, giving money can be helpful sometimes. But what I'm really getting at is I mean, you know, something like maybe Shepherd's Crossing. So it's an organization in town, a local group. They don't just pay people's bills right? They offer to pay a bill, but then you got to come in. They want you to understand. Let's understand your finances. What's going on here? You really need to have a subscription, you know, $150 cable subscription when you can't pay your electric bill. Let's, let's talk about how do you make better decisions in that regard. They actually want to help people for the long run, how set them up to not need help in the future. I, I mean, looking, you know, to something like the local food pantry here in town, the bread basket, or a prison ministry, or, or any number of things like that. And, and it might be, right, that you don't have to suddenly go and get involved with something, right? We're beginning with just this idea, consider the poor, consider the poor. You, you, you simply might just need to, to have your heart ready for when the next opportunity to consider the poor crosses your path. You see the opportunity that you are, you are ready to act in that moment. Maybe that's all it is. Listen, I, I don't know where the Lord will lead you when you consider the poor, but I'm asking you to consider the poor and see where that might actually be. So let us never, ever forget that, that God himself considered the poor when Jesus came into the world and paid a debt that you and I could never pay. We have benefited more from one who has, who considered the poor, than anyone else on the planet. Christians, right? We have received so much that we don't deserve. We have, we have understood mercy. We've received mercy at least. Maybe we don't always understand it. We have received mercy in, in quantities that you just cannot imagine. 
And so consider the poor. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, our, our culture, our own sinful hearts tell us that the only reason that we are not poor is that we have worked harder or been more brilliant than others. Don't let us fail to see that so much of the wealth and security and health that we have is a gift from you. And also teach us to be generous like you are generous. Give us hearts that see you when we see those in need. Help us to understand that difficult concept. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.